They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and Mises PAC. My name's Aaron, I'm your host. As this episode's going up on uh, Friday, May 22nd, uh, the online portion of the Libertarian National Convention, during which we plan to nominate our presidential ticket, is getting underway. So no big announcements other than to ask you if you're a delegate to vote for Jacob Hornberger the presidential, for the presidential nomination, vote for Spike Cohen for the vice presidential nomination. Uh, the reason, of course, we endorse those guys, Jacob is the, is the best communicator among all those in the field as far as getting across libertarian ideas in an unapologetic, non-watered-down way. He really wants to restart the Ron Paul revolution, so it's a pretty obvious choice for us uh, to nominate and stick with Jacob Hornberger. Also, Spike Cohen, he really impressed us during the Mises Caucus. We had a uh, an online forum among some of the vice presidential candidates, and Spike really impressed us during that as a, a really good spokesperson for uh, just the radical decentralized liber- libertarianism that we support. And he does it in a way that you know doesn't back down, but doesn't sound too scary to the uninitiated. So uh, we encourage you to look at Spike Cohen and vote for him. Also, we would like for everyone to vote for the agenda that keeps the compromise. Um, the compromise of May 9th, uh, the LNC decided then to do the, the presidential nominating online this weekend so we could start to, uh, the fight to get uh, our ticket on the ballot in all 50 states. There's a few states where that's going to be tough to do, so we, had, uh, we wanted to have as much time as possible to do that. And the, the other half of the, con- the compromise is that we're going to do the rest of the convention's business in Orlando, July 8th through 12th. Uh, most people, I think, uh, what I'm hearing, want to stick to the compromise and have that in-person convention as required by our bylaws. I think there's a few people who don't want that, so they may try to introduce a measure to say, hey, let's just vote for everything, including chair and all the LNC spots. Uh, while we're on this huge 1,000-person Zoom meeting. Um, So we obviously don't favor that. So vote for the agenda that keeps the compromise. Vote for Jacob and Spike. Also, as always, sign up for email updates from the Mises Caucus at TakeHumanAction.com. You can also become a monthly financial contributor to Mises Pack at TakeHumanAction.com. We're going to have uh, soon have a new round of strong local libertarian candidates to consider endorsing and supporting uh, in the fall elections. We're going to need help from people like you to be able to afford that, hopefully get some of these candidates elected this time around. Also, if you're not in our private Facebook group, you should be. Uh, Just search for Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and ask to be let in and we'll let you in there and uh, you can be up to date on all the latest news. My guest today is Jim Cantrell, a space entrepreneur, a mechanical engineer, a road racer. He's worn many hats in his career. We get into a lot of that in today's talk, including his time with Elon Musk at SpaceX and his role as a member of the Mises Caucus Advisory Board, along with people like uh, Tom Woods and Michael Bolden. Uh, There is one technical note. A couple of times during the interview, we had some brief echo. However, our two rigs were set up, um, for some reason, there were a couple instances where I got a bunch of echo um, in my um, 
headset when I'm trying to speak. And uh, that's very disorienting when it happens, but it doesn't last very long. And uh, I think I recovered fairly well. So I just decided to leave those in to prove to you all that I'm not perfect. So I apologize for that. It only happens a couple of times. Um, so it, when you hear it the first time, don't think it's going to happen like 15 other times because it doesn't. So stick with it. I think you'll enjoy the interview. I don't think it will detract much at all from your enjoyment of my conversation with Jim Cantrell. Jim Cantrell, welcome to Decentralized Revolution. How are you today? Thanks. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And uh, uh, I have had just about everybody who is on the Mises Caucus Advisory Board on the show now, with the exception of Michael Bolden. And um, you're the person that I know the least about. So this is going to be a fun interview for me to uh, I see your your resume and uh, listening to you talk on some things you've done uh, that are on YouTube now. I'm excited. So we got a lot of ground to cover. Um, and the first question I thought I'd ask is when you're at a party, you've got such a diverse resume, you're at a party and people ask you, Hey, what, do, Hey Jim, what do you do for a living? What do you, what's your answer? Yeah. It's, it's sometimes shocking, but I just tell them I build rockets. Okay. So, um, and you build them for right now, the private sector, is that correct? Anybody who will, will buy them. I mean, obviously. Oh. Don't sell to certain countries, but uh. well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so let's talk about why. Um, a lot of times, one objection you'll get when talking to people who uh, don't like libertarianism, they'll say, "Well, there's certain things that, that uh, the private sector just can't or won't do." They say that a lot. It's like there's no incentive for the private sector to do things um, like roads or defense or and space exploration is something that comes up. Uh, in that uh, list of objections as well. So tell tell us why um, we don't need the government to direct all this stuff and what's been driving the uh, growth in in private uh, privately funded space exploration stuff. Sure. Well, so if you go back to the early days of, of, of the space exploration, arguably in the late 50s, early 60s, it was all government funded because there was no economic incentive to go do any of this. But there was a defense oriented uh, incentive to do it. So uh, these capabilities were developed by national agencies, the Defense Department and NASA to address these, these objectives. So NASA arguably, and I, I argue this was really another defense play in the global uh, competition with the Soviet Union uh, to put a man on the moon, and we, we know that famous speech from uh, uh, from the president. And uh, what we uh, what we've seen though was early early stage government capitalized this activity, and the uh, private sector was actually uh, the ones that partly or fully carried out the capability. In the case of NASA, they they kept a lot of that manufacturing in house, and until recently, really haven't given that up. But what we've seen over time is the commercial sector has created demand, or, or at least the market has created demand for services that run through space. For example, uh, communication. So that's right now moving bits through space is about $300 billion a year. And you, you look at observing the, uh, space, the Earth from space, that's another couple hundred million dollars, a couple hundred billion dollars a year of uh, of, uh, of market. So that has been filled in by mostly commercial uh, entities. And, uh, you know, we, we all have GPSs in our phone, which is space-based. That was originally a, a defense system, but again, all built by the private sector. So the, the whole space business is in fact a private sector play in the United States. And uh, there, there's no reason why the government has to own it. There are reasons why they had to capitalize it early on and that, you know, if you look at what are, what are the justifiable uses of the, of the government, you know, common defense is certainly one of them that I buy into. And uh, so this evolved out of that. And so what you're now seeing is the private sector coming back to almost save the, the agencies from themselves and their, and their bad habits. And, and because of the, the budget deficit being what it is, the money doesn't really exist for these agencies to be anything other than mission-oriented. NASA, for example, mission-oriented to put man in space and explore the cosmos, and then the Defense Department, again, to defend our, our, our common uh, borders and so forth. Um, you're finding that, that commercial space is coming 
and bringing this this innovation and uh, putting their own capital in that the U.S. government doesn't have to do. So it's it's a it's a win win story is how I see it. What are the specific areas of growth that uh, these uh, uh, investors think that uh, will yield profits in space exploration? You mentioned communications. Yeah, communications has been around for decades. And uh, if you have satellite TV that comes out of space, if you have satellite radio in your car, which I do in almost every one of my cars, that comes out of space. So that's a very mature, very predictable sector for the most part. Um, even telephone service through space, you know, through Iridium and some of these, these services like that or have been around for decades. So what we're starting to see now is, is a bifurcation into some unusual areas. Imaging of space from, or imaging of Earth rather from space is becoming a much more viable commercial sector. Uh, that was typically the domain of the Defense Department and somewhat NASA, but most of the spy satellite imagery has actually been uh, put out to, to commercial entities that, that uh, produce the satellites, take the imagery and sell it back to the intelligence agencies. And so, so what you're seeing is now a whole new era where we're starting to think about space as a place to do business. So we're starting to think about infrastructure in space. We're starting to think about you know, how you get there uh, in large numbers. There's been an explosion in the number of satellites over the last 10 years due to the investment that's coming in from venture capital. Satellites have gotten smaller, the microelectronics have partially driven that, but it's also the fact that, uh, you know, people are starting to, to, to build a, a industrial base, uh, a supply chain for these small satellites. And so that's driven the numbers up, it's driven the number of people who produce satellites from, there was something like 20 years ago, maybe a dozen to two dozen satellite manufacturers in the world, now there's thousands. And so, so this is becoming sort of an industry for the people rather than an industry for the few. And I think there's freedom in it. I think there's, I think there's uh, liberty to be had by you know, stepping over boundaries of, of international borders and being able to get you know, bits and information and things to, to forbidden places like China and North Korea and some of these other places. So, so there is a liberty aspect to it. Ultimately, you know, people like Jeff Bezos and, and Elon Musk see humanity stepping off of Earth and becoming spacefaring species. That's a little ways further out, but, um, you know, probably in the realm of possible. When you realize that it's illegal to own any of the NASA moon rocks, they're considered federal property. Right now, if you brought back a kilogram of the moon, you could probably split it up and sell it on eBay for a billion dollars. You know, right. so, so there's there's a lot that we don't know that's going to happen in the future, and it's a lot like the Internet. And I remember in the early days, I looked at the internet and said, wow, you know, how are you going to make money on this except for porn and self-promotion? I, I never could imagine what, what it is today. For a lack of imagination, I stepped over a few billion dollars. So right. uh, I think that's what investors see. Yep. Um, another thing you hear talked about a lot, it makes a lot of headlines, is space tourism. Is that, uh, where do you see that going? Is it in the next few years, people going to be taking rides up there? People already do. It's been going on for about 20 years, but again, it's the select few. Uh, you know, the, the classic, uh, like Dennis Tito was the first one that ever did it, and I know Dennis. But he spent something like $20 million. And that's not something most people have in their pockets. Right. Uh, in fact, very few do. And uh, what things like Virgin are trying to do is for $100,000 to $200,000, make it so that you could still go up into space. But that's still, for most people, the price of a home, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, so that's, that's not ordinary kinds of things. So I'm not very bullish on space tourism personally. Um, maybe it's because I have no desire to go up there, but uh, th there are a lot of people that do and will, you know, cough up that kind of money. But I, I see it as sort of a limited uh, industry, frankly. Okay. Yeah. I, I've always been a little skeptical too, because just that high price point and I don't see it ever really coming down where it's like, you know, Disney World is pretty expensive, but it's nowhere, <laughs> nowhere near what uh, uh, a space uh, walk would would cost you. Uh, let's get into a little bit of your background. Uh, where are you from, and how did you get interested in rockets? I grew up in a little sleepy town in Southern California, and uh, had no expectation of doing anything other than following the footsteps of all my ancestors who lived in sleepy towns and farmed the earth, and. Uh, I ended up uh, going to college. Uh, I was the first one in my family to get a college education. 
and uh, was always interested in cars. That was the only thing I ever knew for sure I wanted to do in, in life was to race cars. And uh, so, you know, went into mechanical engineering and uh, I ended up one day in the hallway, I saw a poster on the wall for a NASA funded design course that was about a Mars rover. And I thought, okay, that's an interesting combination of, of cars and, and space. And, uh, you know, I always liked Star Trek and things like that. And Carl Sagan and, and Cosmos was one of those sort of formative things I watched on public television when I was a kid that got me interested in science. Um, so, so naturally, this was something I was interested in. So I went and talked to the, the professor that was, that was teaching the course. And, uh, and I, I got in. I didn't think I would get in because it was way beyond my capabilities, but did very well. And as a result of that, I got a... Uh, I got a job uh, at NASA in a, an internship uh, because I did so well in the course, and that was at JPL in Pasadena. And that's where I met a bunch of uh, unusual people, as it turned out, uh, who most of them were the early pioneers in the space business, but they were uh, sort of disaffected because by the time, you know, this was the mid-80s, by the time this came around, Challenger had blown up one of our space shuttles. Nothing was going on, and so they were casting about try and see if there was other things they could do. And the only people who were flying stuff were the Soviets and the French. And so they were, these people I was hanging around with were cooperating with the Soviets and French in space, sort of on the side, and I got, I got pulled into that. So that's how, that's how I got in, you know, to the French Space Agency for my first job. And uh, that was working a joint Soviet-French uh, uh, program to Mars. So the rest let's, of let's, history. let's talk about let's that talk a little bit. Um, um, I'm getting a little echo there. there. You don't, you don't have <laughs> headphones? Uh, I don't have headphones, no. Okay. Um, I think it's gone away. I don't know what happened there. Um, we were talking about, oh, so your first job out of college was with the French Space Agency, and that was in the mid-80s. Uh, I, I didn't know that, uh, that the West would be collaborating with the Soviets on something like that at that time. So talk about the dynamics of that. Yeah, so the, the French always viewed themselves as sort of this this balance of power, you know, that, that they viewed the world as, as bipolar with the Soviets and the United States, but they were, you know, sort of egotistically thought they were the third force that balanced it out. So they took upon themselves to deal closely with the Soviets. So uh, they had a long history of cooperation space going back to the 60s with, uh, with the Soviet Union. And so this was a mission to Mars that the Soviets were leading, but the French were providing a balloon, as it turned out, to go to Mars. And uh, they, they had done this before on a Venus balloon. And uh, so, so the French, um, it, it, was, it was very interesting for me when I, when I moved there. This was like 1989. And uh, the, you know, the French understood that the, the glue that kept this whole cooperation together was actually on a person-to-person -person level. And part of it was that when the Soviets would come over for meetings and we had these excruciating two week long meetings with the Soviets, you know, it was like delegations of, you know, negotiating peace treaties or something, um, you know, but they got paid like $300 a day in per diem by the French government to stay there. So, so the, these individual Soviets would make more money in two weeks than they would make in 10 years in the Soviet Union. And so that was the glue that held it together. And when I finally realized that, you know, you, you realize that capitalism is sort of at the bottom of everything, right? This, there was a financial incentive for these guys to do it. And we, you know, we liked them. Uh, but, you know, working with the Soviets, you, you got the sense that, you know, and I was always a hardcore anti-communist, but you got this sense that the, the real victims of communism were just the people. And, you know, we, we grew up to think that the Soviets were evil, mean, 13 feet tall, going to kill us. Well, maybe some of them, but you know, the, the average people that you got to know were decent people and they were the victims of, of this whole thing. I remember very distinctly one incident where um, we took them into the French equivalent of today's Walmart. Okay. Um, where you have food and you have, you know, clothing and, you know, some, some, some other hardware supplies and things like that. It's called Carrefour. And we took the, the Soviets, they always like to go shopping as their, as their hobby. Right. Right. So we take them in there and they wouldn't buy anything. They would just walk around and look at everything. They wouldn't, they wouldn't buy a thing. And then uh, we were accused uh, then afterwards by one of the political officers, the KGB. He said, well, we know that, that you have to take that, all those things, those people, 
work for the government and they're just bringing the, the carts around to the back of the store and returning it. There's no <laughs> way you could have that much stuff. Well, <laughs> Uh, what what other types of interactions did you have talking to these guys about, um, you know, guys who are probably at the top of their field and very highly intelligent and working in by what that time, you know, I'm, I'm just old enough to remember all this. I was about 15 when the Berlin Wall fell. And I remember just what a huge, huge thing that was. And you're right. They used to uh, it used to be that the communists were, you know, literally listening at every keyhole and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they did have a great, uh, a big uh, a repressive regime at home. What did those, did those guys feel free to talk about that stuff at all at that point or, or no? Very, very paranoid. And uh, you're swerving into a very interesting topic I want to cover, which is the, the similarities between what's going on in our country today over the past two months and what I saw in the Soviet Union. You know, there was this uh, paranoia that was going on that, you know, if you talk the wrong thing to the wrong people that you get reported. And, and as one, one Russian told me one time, because I'm rather outspoken, and he, he said, uh, during Soviet times, you were the person Stalin would take out back and shoot. You know, so, so you, you weren't allowed to criticize uh, others, particularly those who were superior to you and so forth. It was a, it was a country run by permission, not by rules. And that was the interesting part, okay? And that was, I have to say, the fundamental difference that I saw between Western civilization as I knew it in the 80s, which we're a country of laws, we're a country of rules, and we mostly try to abide by them in the Soviet Union, which was, you know, if somebody told you to go do it, you could do it. It didn't matter if there was a law or not, you just did it. So we as foreigners actually had, as long as the government wanted us to be, we had total freedom of movement, we had total freedom of action uh, because we were their guests in their country. And uh, so, so you know, but a couple of funny things, like there was never a toilet paper in this country. And so we, you know, I used to bring over these little Kleenex, uh, they were the most convenient things you put them in your pocket, a roll of toilet paper is not so good in your pocket, but we'd bring these little Kleenex uh, pads, you know, and that worked out pretty good as toilet paper. Um, but everything was scarce, right? There was a scarcity in the stores. Um, you know, you, you'd have to line up, you know, for hours in the stores. The, the food supply chain wasn't there. They could produce the food in the fields, but they couldn't get it to the to the stores. And it was because of the the way the government set the system up. It wasn't because they lived in a particularly poor land, where they couldn't produce, you know, more cows. Or they couldn't produce more wheat. The, the wheat would actually die in the fields because it wasn't being harvested because there was no incentive for a lot of these people to harvest it. So, you know, what I see today really bothered me when this when this COVID thing started to hit, whether or not you agree that the virus was a, a, was a threat, the response to this virus was really disappointing on so many levels. Uh, the first level that struck me was it certainly looked more like the old Soviet Union than I ever imagined I would see in this country. Yeah. And, you know, the shortage of toilet paper brought it to mind first, you know, but then the shortage of food and having to wait in lines and then the mentality of the people struck me, you know, just sort of this paranoia. And it's the paranoia is still there. You know, I, I don't wear a mask and because I don't, I'm, I'm a man of science and I don't believe it does any good. So I go out in public and people stare at me, you know, as if I'm some sort of, alien, you know, I'm, I'm giving them a visible sign that I'm not conforming to the what's what's considered to be the societal's norms. So so you get this 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 public uh, distrust of people and this public division by by you know how you dress. And you, you saw that in the Soviet Union too. So in in you look at the, the way the economy, some some people were allowed to operate their businesses, some people weren't. I mean to me the, the government doesn't give us permission to operate a business. We give the government permission to exist, right? They they work for us. They are serving at our pleasure, not the other way around. Suddenly, all of a sudden, overnight, a virus happens, and we're the victims of our government, who we find out, and we knew it all along, right? We as libertarians have said, these people are, are inherently totalitarians, and we see them restricting the businesses, and that, except for some. And I, I even got a letter from the Pentagon saying, I was free to go do whatever the hell I wanted, right? And I remember walking around this old Soviet Union with a letter from Viktor Chernomirin, their prime minister, basically saying the same thing. You know, so, so we turned into the Soviet Union overnight. And, and I guess, you know, in my heart of hearts, I am still surprised 
but I'd always thought we were different. And I guess we're really not, you know, we're, we're, we have to fight for that difference. We have to, it, it's like the weight of the world. We have to keep pushed up. And as soon as we let it go, it, here, here we go into the descent into this tyranny, which I don't understand. Yeah. I think something has happened over the last 20 years or so. Um, and you know, every generation says this, that, Oh, and my, back in my day, it was a little bit better, but, uh, on things like people being willing to, uh, you mentioned the paranoia in the Soviet union. There are people now who are, you know, peering out their windows to see who's, uh, whose kids are playing in right. too big of a group and ready to snitch on people. Um, what, what do you think, what do you think changed? Cause Americans would never usually do that. We would, would, would going to the cops was a last resort and the cops were much more civil and professional, uh, back in the day. Uh, what, what changed? It's a really good question. Um, and I, I will tell you, I don't know, but I have a couple of theories. So one, one theory is sort of conspiratorial, which at least lives in the back of your mind. That's right? allowed here where conspiracies are, are welcome here. Well, I'm not a conspiracy person in general. The other one, I think, is perhaps more more data-based. We'll start with the first one. So it looks to me like two things happen, big things happen. One is we lost that huge, huge existential threat to our existence, and that was the Soviet Union. And if you go back prior to World War II, you know, we had, we had multiple existential threats to our existence. And you know, this country's always been in war one way or another and, you know, under attack. And that, that sort of jives with my experience in life. Once you create something uh, wealthy or, or not wealthy, but valuable, um, you know, people come after it. And, and that's the way at a country level, you know, national level or an individual level or, or, you know, cities and so forth. History supports that. So losing the Soviet Union created this sense of, oh, now we don't have to worry about things and we can improve ourselves. We used to call it the war dividend, the Cold War dividend. And then the second thing I think that's happened is the pure prosperity that happened. And because we as human beings, I think, need things to push against, um, we we really lost that when, when it was so easy to make money. You know, I, I, I joke and I say, you know, I'd be a criminal uh, because it sounds like a fun profession if making money wasn't so easy to do it honestly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so it's the same sort of thing, though. But I think people have a tendency to change their their outlook on life when they find it so easy. They tend to start thinking of things like, well, you know, maybe I should feel guilty for inheriting money from my parents who worked their, their, their tails off to get to this point. And maybe we should all give this away. So then they start imposing their guilt feelings on everybody else. So So I think those two things really are what changed. And, and as a result, when nobody's monitoring the door about and reminded about how bad communism is, it creeps in the front door. And that, that, that sort of socialism, communism, tyranny is really what's done it. And it's been motivated by power. We know that, and it wasn't just Obama, but Obama supercharged the intelligence agencies against political uh, uh, enemies and political adversaries. And then we know it went back to George Bush. They started it with the damn Patriot Act. And then if you go, there's evidence that takes it clear back into the Carter era, even during Reagan's era, they did it. But it was, you know, gradually more and more severe. Edward Snowden, okay, when he came out and, and you know, I was cleared for many years and what he did was an absolute no-no, right? And, you know, you just don't talk about that stuff. But I suspect, and this is this is just my suspicion that, he became aware of what was going on politically and that he never really said that. And this is why I think there, there's multiple reasons why people are so vicious against him. But one of them was that this political spying on everybody else, this, this dirty secret that the surveillance system, the Stasi system we've set up in this country, which we intended for our enemies, and it's damned efficient, Adam, was getting used on ourselves that secret couldn't be let out. And I think that's why the, the response to Snowden was so vicious. So, so if you ask, just to cover the conspiratorial side of this, so I really was not a not an anti-Chinese person at all until very recently. And uh, I had some, some things in business happen to me that kind of woke me up. Uh, and so, so the other side of this is, is I think we've seen some of our enemies, and, and again, the Chinese are still communists. They're, they're different communists than the, the Soviets were, 
I think we've seen them infiltrate, and it must must be a, a, a long plan or they're just damn lucky, one of the two. They've infiltrated our, our society. They bought our politicians. They bought our business people. <laughs> Hell, they bought our businesses. They bought into things like Facebook and some of these other things where, where you know, you criticize the wrong thing and you, you get taken out. It's a communist thing. So, so I think all those things together really is kind of, kind of what's what's the difference between now and before. I don't think we're any better or worse as people. I don't think that people fundamentally change and uh, as a society. That's why the, the liberty is a constant, it's a, a constant under constant threat, and it's a constant thing you have to defend. And uh, that's why I'm a libertarian. Is is we're the only ones that seem to be talking that anymore. Yeah, you're right. Um, let's go back to um, your time in France. And then when you came back to the U S what, uh, what path did your career start to take then? So I was in the Soviet union on August 23rd, 1991, when the Soviet union collapsed, they had a, uh, what's what was called a pooch. Yep. And I woke up in the morning and there were, there was, you know, these three button radios. You could only listen to three stations to prove <laughs> one state. Sounds familiar, right? Yep. <laughs> so, so you know, I, I turned on. All I had was the Soviet anthem, which I recognized from the Olympics, and on all three stations, I thought hmm, something's happened. And uh, so, over breakfast, you know, we all began to talk about things we'd heard from various people. And the waitress talked to us, and, and uh, turns out there had been a, a you know a pooch, and, and that there was tanks in the streets, and so on. We'd heard there was shooting in Moscow, and so on. So we went in to the institute that morning and um, uh, there was only one person, everybody else was out defending the radio station. Latvia declared uh, independence and uh, so forth. So we got stuck there for another week and we actually went into Moscow. We took the train, the train was still running. We went to Moscow to see what all the shooting was about. Saw the tanks on the steps. And you know, at the time it seemed like an inconvenience, but we didn't realize we were you know, dealing with history. And as I went back to France after this was all over, I suddenly realized that this thing I was working on was dead. <laughs> it was not going to survive. So I made plans to come back to the United States. And it turned out, uh, you know, I was even voting for Ronald Reagan back in those days. And I was considered a traitor for having worked with the Soviets and the French, right? right. And, you know, it was not much I gave any thought to at the time. You know, I just thought it was an interesting thing to do. So nobody would hire me and uh, everywhere I would go, you know, to these various defense places, they would follow me into the bathrooms. And, you know, was, I was just a suspect. And uh, this, this professor that let me into the, the design course way back when uh, was now in charge of the space lab at the university I came from in Utah. And uh, he said, uh, hey, you know, I'll hire you back, that's fine. And um, within about uh, two months uh, of coming back, and this was in, what, 1992, um, you know, he, he brought a friend down that was from the Defense Intelligence Agency and said, hey, this is my friend. We went to West Point together. He's with DIA. Uh, I told him that you speak Russian and you know the Soviets. And I'm thinking I'm in trouble, right? And it turns out they, they wanted uh, to recruit me to be part of a program where we're going to stop brain drain. And so the long and short of that was the U.S. government put up money to go into the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, and get stuff going, projects, just to keep these guys busy. Because once the, we knew this from the French experience, once the, the pooch happened, all the payments to, to all the people that worked in these, these government-run industries stopped. There was no, no payments being made. It kind of sounds like COVID, doesn't it? It was almost instantaneously like what we experienced over the last two months here. And, uh, you know, people want to feed their families and there's there's the North Koreans and the Iranians who are coming in and you know you can't hardly blame somebody for wanting to feed their family so our strategy was to go in and try to pinpoint those those types of places and and just get money into the system it didn't take a lot of money you know the average Soviet was making thirty dollars uh, a month and uh, so if we put you know five hundred dollars a year that gets one one scientist right that could make the difference between a nuclear weapon going off in, in Los Angeles or not. So it was a, you know, it was a high payoff, high risk game. So I spent the next five, six, seven years in the, in the former Soviet Union doing things like converting ICBMs to satellite launchers. We built some satellites with them. We bought nuclear reactors. We bought stuff that was for sale that we wanted to get off the market, um, turn them in as museum pieces in some cases and, 
and uh, other people had interesting uses for them as well in the U.S. government. So I did that, um, and I think ultimately launched a uh, private uh, solar sail mission out of a, a Russian submarine, a converted uh, SLBM. So we took, well, we didn't take it off. The Russians took the warheads off. We put our solar sail in there and launched it out of the Barents Sea. So oh, wow. that was kind of an interesting uh, career, yeah. <laughs> and that led to Elon Musk. Yeah, well, let's talk about him in a second. But did you, um, you, you know, being in Russia and working with Russians in, in France uh, right before a lot of that turmoil, did you, was that a surprise to you? It, I know the 15-year-old me, that was a shock because the world was set up a certain way and now it wasn't. But then um, you look back now and knowing what I know about economics, that you knew that that was inevitable. But at the time, what did you, what did you think? Total, total shock to me. I remember the first time I went to the Soviet Union, um, it was 89, I think it was. And uh, I was with my French colleagues and uh, we looked around and, you know, everything was, was decrepit. There was no infrastructure in the, in the Soviet Union. I mean, just, just to go from one big city to another was a major deal. I mean, the roads were two-lane highways and a lot of times, you know, they were they were you know closed for this, that, or the other, had holes in them. And, so forth. Nothing, nothing at all like the United States where you can get in your car and you can drive for five days straight and end up in Maine if you're down here in, in Tucson, you know, five days later and, uh, you know, hit McDonald's all the way and yep. stay in nice hotels. Nothing at all like that. So, so for me, I had always been told that the Soviet Union was, you know, these 13 foot tall characters and everything was better in the Soviet Union and all these, all this propaganda, right? So we, that was my first shock was that the propaganda was a lie, right? I shouldn't have been so surprised, but I was early 20s, okay? And, uh, you know, I said to one of my French colleagues, I said, wow, things have really gone to hell here, you know, during perestroika. And he said, no, my friend, it's been this way since the 60s. <laughs> They've always yeah. been this way. That was my number one shock, right? Then, then I guess when it all fell apart, it was more the speed that it fell apart. And, um, you know, I've had things in my life since then that, that happened very rapidly. You know, you, you see like Boeing, look what happened to Boeing. And, uh, you know, the story's not done there, but just before the COVID thing, it looked like they were going to go under. And, you know, a big company like that, it's hard to imagine how one little software flaw can take a, you know, multi-billion dollar company down. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we saw this happen on a country level with the Soviet Union. So, yeah, I, you know, that's why I worry about what happens here. You know, I mean, we see how fast COVID took over. And I, I maintain the fear is going to remain with us for five or 10 years. The damage is done, right? Whether or not the virus is real, it's, it's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a, really a, an argument that doesn't matter. So, so the, the fear, though, is, is going to be with us. And, you know, smart people I know, very intelligent, very well educated, they have that fear. And when, when that sort of thing takes hold in a society, you know, it becomes destructive. So, so we're going through something similar now. I just don't know what the outcome looks like. Yeah. It, what do you think about the fact that a lot of the response to COVID seems to fall along left, right lines? It, 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 that's very bizarre to me, but yeah. it, it, it makes sense given, I think the way the media has been, uh, playing things for the last generation or so, but what it, it there doesn't seem to be any logical reason why, uh, why your political, well, maybe not to answer that for me. Do you think there's a reason why it's a left, right thing? Actually I do. I think it's self-interest. Okay. And I think there's self-interest in those who, who want the president unelected or not elected again. Uh, and, and you'll look at, I, I told people, you know, beginning of the year, you know, because I'm not going to vote for the guy necessarily, but so look, he's going to win the election again. It's just a given, right? You looked at the the cards and who they were putting up against him. So it, it's very unlikely he's not going to get elected. I think everybody saw that. And then when this virus came and the response to it came, which I don't think was political, but I think the prolonging of, of the consequences has become political because there's self-interest in prolonging the economic damage here. And I think it just proves how how rotten our politics have become that people are willing to actually destroy even their own prosperity and, and those of their neighbors. You know, me, I'm doing fine in this. It turns out I'm busier than I've ever been. But, you know, what I feel bad for is all the people I know, my good friends, my family, 
who are suffering, you know, and I do what I can to help. But, you know, at an individual level, it, it's it's a da- level of damage you can't deal with. So so that's really disappointing to me. And then, of course, you know, the Republicans run into their 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 uh, conspiracy theories, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah, OK, I had a little bit to do in the Soviet Union with with bioweapons stuff. And I know a little bit about it. I have no doubt that this virus originated in that, that laboratory because that's what we do. We do it on our side, too. We experiment with these things, these novel viruses to understand if they're a threat or not and how we how we can detect it and things like that. But no, I don't think that this was China's plot. <laughs> you know, it's, so going back to my my professor, Frank Red, you know, he told me one time, he says, don't attribute to malice what you can otherwise attribute to uh, 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 incompetence. And I think in this case, it, that's really what's happened. Yeah, I think you might be right on that. Um, let's talk about Elon Musk. You brought him up and of course, He's in the news a lot lately, but how did you uh, come to into his orbit, so to speak? Yeah, I'll have to say before I talk about him, I'm real proud of how he's uh, suddenly turned into a uh, liberty-loving person. <laughs> I always knew him to be that way, but I didn't see that during the Obama era, and I was, you know, part of part of what drove me away from him was, you know, sort of this politics of expedience. Um, but so, so yeah, he called me out of the blue uh, in 2001. It was mid-July on a Friday afternoon and uh, called my cell phone and gotten it from a guy named Bob Zubrin who wrote the case for Mars and he, he founded the Mars Society. And Bob and I you know, knew each other from my days in France, but um, he called me looking for somebody to help him buy Russian rockets for a pet project he wanted to do on Mars. Turned out growing a plant on Mars using you know the carbon dioxide from the Martian atmosphere and, and it was sort of terraforming, if you will, on a very small scale. So, um, you know, I, I talked to him. I thought he was crazy. I'd never heard of PayPal. I didn't know what it was. Um, and I had a lot of, during that time, a lot of these, these so-called billionaire uh, internet entrepreneurs coming and wanting to do things in space. That was kind of the Vogue thing. So I, I'd had experience with a few others, you know, that we'd helped. And uh, they always wanted to go to Russia to buy stuff. So that was kind of, I was, I was the trafficker of Russian things. And so um, we took him over. Uh, helped him design this Mars mission. I got a bunch of guys together. And I really, you know, I call them space cowboys. They're sort of the ones who are disaffected from the system. And they, they sort of exist on the edges of the of the aerospace system, but don't want to be part of it. You know, they're not conformist enough to be part of it. And I, of course, was one of them, one of the leaders, I suppose. Um, and so we got those guys together. We designed the Mars mission for them. We went to Russia in fact, I took a guy named Mike Griffin, who later became the uh, NASA administrator under Bush, and uh, now he's Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition in the Defense Department. But he, back then, went with us as a consultant, and uh, he, uh, he and Elon and I uh, failed to make a deal with two of these Russian uh, companies. And this is kind of a, you can read about it on the internet if you want the details, some interesting, funny stories about getting spit on by the Russians and so on. But uh, that was when Elon... Uh, told us that he decided to build a rocket himself. And to say that in 2001 was a little bit like, uh, uh, I don't know what would be comparable to say, uh, oh, that you might want to build a car company that builds electric cars and take on GM. It's, it's that sort of titanic uh, ambition. It, you know, same people just didn't do what Elon wanted to do. And uh, so, so Mike and I teased him, but, you know, it turns out some of these guys I brought in had been uh, showing Elon how they were building rockets in their garage. So there was this, again, this entrepreneurial thing going on where, you know, who needs the government? We're just going to go do it ourselves. And Elon resonated with it. So he started SpaceX. I was, I was the second employee there and I lasted eh, about a year and a half. And uh, he and I uh, had a difference in, in, in opinions on things and he's a pretty hard guy to work for. So, so I left and I guess I'm a hard guy to have working for you. So, uh, that that's suited us suited us both very well. Now SpaceX is still going, right? Doing very well, yeah. Okay, so what are they? What are have some of their successes been? Well, you, you go back to what the private sector's done. So they they ended up taking under Obama uh, about seven hundred million dollars of NASA money on a on a contract called COTS that was commercial uh, technologies. Um, so so they were. They were trying to get NASA, or I mean, the commercial resupply of the space station, and eventually commercial 
flights of astronauts to the space station. Right now, we're using Russian rockets to fly our astronauts up there and our commercial resupply to some degree. So back in, you know, in this was, you know, about 2004, 2005, um, NASA made a big bet on this. And so for $700 million, Elon did what NASA had a program to do at the same time and spent $50 billion and didn't get there. So, so we're talking almost 50, 60 to one ratio of capital investment. He got a Falcon 9 rocket going and a, and a Dragon capsule that got to the space station. Yeah. And uh, that was just, that was pure heroics, right? And, and it proved the, the power of capitalism in my view. And to me, it changed the dynamic of everything in the space business, because suddenly he proved that these big, heavy capital intensive projects like this Falcon 9 rocket, you know, that literally cost a half a billion dollars, could be done by a group of space cowboys with the right amount of uh, guidance and, you know, that sort of thing. So, so they did that. And today they're very close to launching their first astronauts. NASA still doesn't have a capability to do it. Their rocket called SLS, I call it the rocket to nowhere. Uh, something on the order of two to three billion dollars a launch. I've lost track of where the launch costs are on it, but they spent, you know, 50, 60, 70 billion dollars on this rocket. And, uh, you know, some people think that only NASA astronauts can go on NASA rockets, you know, but the cost is getting so prohibitive that even if they do make it, they won't fly very often. So, so Elon's, Elon's um, legacy is going to be huge. And I think he, He's going to be probably the first man on Mars. I'm going to predict that. And really, he, really, yeah. Back in the early days, he he told me that you know he was interested in Mars bases, and I said, look, Elon, you know, don't don't show this Mars base stuff to anybody. Say you're going to build a rocket, and people can consider your mental state already. But if you start talking about Mars bases, they'll think you're going to you know talk about aliens next. So let's not go there. But I, I've known from the very beginning that this is what's driving him. This is this is what's driving this man. It's not money. He has he has a mission he's on, and his mission is to get to Mars for himself and other people. And and I, I you know, look, he just sold all his stuff, or he's selling all his stuff. What does that tell you? The, the guy, the guy's the smartest guy I've ever known. But I'm I'm so happy to see him stand up in the state of California and give him the middle finger and say, "Come arrest me." That's the Elon I know and love. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Let talk Let, about talk about. Um, um, uh, again, the, uh, echo, the again. echo again. Sorry. Sorry. Um, um, how how long would it take to get to Mars using technology that we have right now or in the near future? About nine months. Okay. So I, for some reason I thought it was longer than that. So it's, so it's very doable is what you're telling me. Yeah. yeah okay. We've got people living in space for several years and we know it can, can happen. It can work and nobody's going to probably die. I mean, you want to sit in a can for nine months like that, you know, yeah. <laughs> you'll see a desert that looks arguably like Arizona. Be my guest. I, I have no <laughs> desire to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk about what you're doing these days. Uh, since you left SpaceX, you've started, I think, a couple of different companies and the list is long. So I'll let you pick out any highlights in there of the last decade or so, plus what you're doing now. Yeah, I started Strat Space when I left uh, SpaceX, and we built a lot of satellites, did a lot of military work, and uh, that was good until it wasn't. And uh, I, I hit this point, I don't know, it was about 2007, 2008, where I became a little bit of a conscientious objector to the, the military stuff we were doing, primarily the surveillance, right? And that's where I walked away. Between that and what I saw happening to my son's friends, you know, to come back from the wars, um, you know, I just couldn't do this anymore. So I... I went off into automotive for a number of years and uh, uh, that's where I got, you know, my professional racing career going and uh, that was good. And then, then the commercial space industry kept coming back and uh, because I, you know, was one of the early pioneers in some of this, this crazy stuff. Um, I kept getting drawn back into this by the investors and I helped a company called Skybox get started. And we sold that to Google for half a billion between that and SpaceX. That's really what set the, you know, the modern uh, commercial space era on, on, on fire. Uh, it's been doused by COVID, <laughs> so yeah. it'll come back. But uh, I started a company called Vector, left there in 2019, and I recently started something called Phantom Space, uh, where we're building uh, space infrastructure. So, so we're, you know, building all the, uh, all, the, all the components we think that 
we, we need to build for the future uh, of, of the space economy. It's kind of like Cisco to the internet. We're okay. Phantom is to space as Cisco is to the internet. Okay. Yeah. That's, that sounds like a good idea. Uh, let's talk about racing. Uh, I shared with you oh, in our email exchanges that my dad was a, is a car guy and, and raced Studebakers back in the late sixties. He raced early fifties Studebakers uh, drag racing. And so I know a little bit about that, uh, uh, just a tiny bit about that world. Um, but I, I always like being around car guys because they just seem to have so much fun. So how did you get to be in a car guy? Well, I was born that way. And, uh, you know, from the time I was a kid, you know, I had little plastic go-karts and then I made wood go-karts. I lived on a hill and would, you know, ride these soapbox derbies down the hill and go faster and faster and cheat death, you know, and then got a real go-kart, you know, with a, with a motor and raced those when I was a young, uh, young kid. And, uh, went to college, you know, a lot of that stuff stopped because you have to be responsible and, and, uh, and I had a family, but I picked it back up, um, you know, in, in my forties uh, and I did, did a lot of drag racing early on, but I picked up my, uh, uh, hold on a second. My screen went blank here. That's it's okay. Fun. Okay. Um, so I picked up uh, road racing in my 40s. And, uh, you know, so so like somebody said, you know, what what took uh, Don Garlitz six seconds to accomplish, <laughs> it would take uh, Richard Petty about two hours to accomplish, which would take uh, Carol Shelby 24 hours to accomplish. So I was, I became more sort of the, from the six seconds to the 24 hours side of it and started doing a lot of endurance racing and uh, been in a number of 24-hour races and uh, uh, it's become it's become sort of the reason i continue to try and stay in shape and uh, and healthy and so forth so i can continue racing it's uh, it's a total total uh, passion so you're driving as well as uh designing are you designing new cars or are you taking existing stock and souping them up or what is that all the above yeah so so we've we've designed a few new cars i'm in the process of building one and uh, i've always wanted to build my car the car from the frame up you know yeah so i got one of those underway but mostly uh taking in uh either buying you know historic ones and restoring them or creating new new race cars out of modern uh, fendered cars and so forth and that's that's your company called vintage exotics competition engineering okay what's your uh um if you could pick one of the cars that you've raced, um, just to, if you could only keep one of them, what's your favorite car? If I could only keep one today. It would have to be my Porsche 997 GT3. Okay. So, uh, yeah, yeah. The Porsches, I, I started out as a Corvette guy. And if you know anything about racing Corvettes and Porsches, they, they're the main, uh, adversaries. So, so, you know, the Corvettes I liked because they were cheap and easy. But I kept getting beat by the damn Porsche. So I finally I, I went over to Porsche. And uh, once you go there, you stay there. Yeah. Did you see the Ford versus Ferrari movie? Oh, hell yes. Yeah. Well, my, I took my dad and a, and a friend of his to see that, and they loved it. So t- what, what, was, what did they get right there? That was great. I th- uh, thought it was great, too. Story was a bit compromised. I, I think they got sort of – I used to tell people that this is my tribe, you know. I mean, they got, they got the spirit of the people really right. And, uh, you know, Carol Shelby, I knew a little bit, um, and, uh, uh, you know, like my crew chief, uh, knew miles, Ken miles and, uh, some of these other guys, you know, I've, I've known. So I knew some of the characters and, and just sort of the strong character of the individuals in there. They absolutely got right. The other thing that I find interesting about racing that they got right in this movie was how, how sort of libertarian it is. Right. So we have our own rules. We abide by our rules. We enforce our own rules, and uh, you know we we finance it ourselves. We find ways for people, either our own credit cards or you know sponsorship. But but in the end, we don't need a government to come in and tell us how we can or can't do these things. So so it's a very libertarian kind of kind of sense, and and you got that from from the movie. Yeah. When did you realize that you were a libertarian rather than a, maybe a cold war conservative or whatever you might've considered yourself at the time? And why are you outspoken about it now? Yeah. Yeah. It was in 2007 and uh, I'd gone through a divorce and my, my son who is about 30, 31 years old now, uh, you know, a lot of his friends had gone off to, to the Iraq war, which I didn't support the Iraq war. I did definitely support the Afghan war. And, you know, my, my support of that 
became very personal when you know one of them came home and he was he was missing body parts you know so i uh i became rather anti-war on that and i you know, and i know i didn't have a home with the republicans i, I always felt sort of an oddity there i mean i was never never of the same opinion as as they were about things like um you know uh prostitution and drugs and never understood why you know the government had the inherent right to tell you you couldn't mix a certain set of chemicals and put them in your body not that i do it i don't really i don't, I don't in fact i can't put hardly any chemistry in my body anymore but uh there's no inherent reason why the government can do it and uh you know i just began searching and i found the libertarians and and at first i thought they were weird and uh you know as i got to understand it i thought i i i really uh, appreciated the free spirit of the libertarians you know even the the strange colored hair and all the things that goes along with it right and there's there's various flavors in the libertarian community so you know just to be clear my 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 republican friends think i'm a liberal right i've had them accuse me of being a liberal because <laughs> they they choose to to evaluate me on my anti-war stance and my pro-drug stance my pro-prostitution stance you know which is principled and then of course my, my left-wing friends think i'm a hardcore right-winger you know because i'm pro-gun yeah yeah um you were uh, slated to be one of the speakers uh, upcoming at uh, what would have been the convention this coming weekend um in Austin, Texas, uh, did you have a? Did you get as far along as uh, having a speech ready? What would you tell the Libertarian Party if, uh, if, if and when we get to meet again in public? Yeah. So my theme really has been the power of technology to defeat tyranny, and uh, I, I'm still a big believer in that. And uh, you know, you you look at what we're facing right now. Uh, and we, there's technology that can get around what these guys are uh, trying to do to us, right? And, uh, you know, even what we're using here, this video technology, is a way to get around tyranny. They want to they control the economic means and the economic production in the country, yet people are, they've got video systems and they're working from home, and now we're Uberizing our home environments. So we'll get through this, right? And that was the theme I wanted to come out with was, you know, ultimately it's about escaping the planet and who's going to follow you, what government's going to follow you. You know, if Elon does go to Mars, what government's there, right? It, it has to be a libertarian society and it has to be like racing. You have your own rules, you enforce those rules. If you if you don't live by those rules, you're out. And, but it's, it's done by voluntary choice. And uh, to me, that that that's the theme as we go forward is we have to start thinking about the power of technology. The only way I can think of to def defeat, you know, the tyrants like the Chinese is to feed information to their population that's free of censorship. And, and we have the same problem here in this country. Now we have censorship from Facebook and Twitter and all these public uh, media platforms where you get deplatformed because you say the wrong things. And technology is the way around this. You know, they're using technology to enforce their tyranny and we'll, we'll use technology to get around them. And the tyrants are always dumber than the people who are seeking liberty. So we'll always win. Let's, let's talk about some of those things. The a phrase you used in the, in the talk that I watched a little bit of is disruptive decentralizing technology. And of course, that's what we're, we're all about here at the Mises caucus is the decentralized aspect of things. What are some of those killer apps that are going to help us uh, defeat tyranny in the next 10 to 20 years? So blockchain is certainly one of them. And uh, you know, I, didn't start out as a blockchain fan, but I began to understand the power of the blockchain. And I don't mean just cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency is just one, one, one aspect of it. And in fact, we're working on, within Phantom, my, my new company, we're working on uh, some blockchain-enabled satellite capabilities that we think we can create tokenized networks that, uh, that are uh, something that uh, can be uh, placed worldwide and other people can hook onto, much like the internet and uh, use the tokenization to actually derive their sort of ownership and, proper, and profit from it. Um, so, so I think blockchain across the board, that contracts and, and so forth, all becomes decentralizing. So you can enforce rules without a central authority to, to have to do it. And uh, you can also uh, get information into places that uh, it, it can't get bef you know, before. So the other the other thing I think is is global communications. If you look at the difference between where we were 100 years ago, even 30 years ago, 
and where we are now. I, I when I was a kid, I used to read in encyclopedias. In fact, I still have my Britannicus right behind me, and that was my internet. And but but you know those books were sacred. Some people burned them, and so forth. Now I have a million, maybe a billion times that information available to me through this computer screen. Yet not everybody on earth has that. It's all censored in, in China. It's censored in many, it's censored in the United States, as a matter of fact. So a worldwide communication capability that people can take their their little their little cell phone here. And this is this is a weapon, right? That's why that's why the NSA is all over it. This is your personal tracking device. This 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 is going to be the technology that defeats these people if we can communicate to these all over the world. Right. And if we can get the message of liberty out, because liberty always sells, it always sells. So, so how do we get uh, uh, cell phones to a billion Chinese? How, how, how does that work? How, what can we do that's not, you know, that having the government do it? Um, what can private people and markets do uh, to get them access to that information? Well, I guess I take issue with uh, the, the assumption of your question, which is that the Chinese don't have cell phones. They do. A large yeah. portion of them do. Okay. And the reason is, is totalitarian regimes love these things because you can be tracked, right? And everything you do goes through one central device and it can be listened to and tracked and so forth. So if you can devise a capability, and this is my goal of talking directly to these devices from orbit around all the regulatory authorities, now you have something that nobody can stop. Right. Well, that's, that, that opens up a whole lot of, uh, possibilities right direct uh direct from space how can you jam something like that is is that possible you have to jam the whole country then you jam everything okay yeah you have to make that choice it's like the covid choice shut everything down to stop the virus right that's that's a brilliant idea that's a brilliant idea um (laughs) um one of the things that uh you mentioned um in one of the emails i said what do you want to talk about um, other topics, and uh, in addition to machines and racing and a love of liberty, uh, you said a love of family. So I thought I'd give you a chance to to talk a little bit about about them. Yeah, no, I've got a great family. We're a Brady bunch, right? This is my second marriage, and uh, I've got two kids that came from my second marriage, Daniela and Alec. And uh, Daniela is a, uh, a first responder and a libertarian down in uh, New Orleans, and then. On uh, my side of the family, I've got my son, Colin, who uh, is the founder of Nexus uh, Cryptocurrency, if any of you are familiar with that. And uh, he uh, is doing well. And then my daughter, Victoria, who uh, free spirit living in Key West. And then my two younger daughters, Heather and uh, Sarah. And then, of course, my lovely wife, Angela, who, uh, you know, is uh, probably the, uh, the cornerstone of my life. Yep. Well, that's good to hear. And they're all healthy. Everything's going okay. It's good. Yeah. We all struggle with our own little, little issues, but you know how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe one last question. Um, where do you see the Libertarian Party going in the next few years? Are you optimistic? Are you not somewhere in the middle? After the last few weeks, I'm less optimistic than I was before. <laughs> uh, no, I think this is a rough patch we're going through, you know, and uh, I hate to see you know, even though I agree with almost both sides on this, can we have a, a, a virtual convention or not? I, I hate to see, you know, the fighting that, that breaks out. I think I think we need some something to unify around and uh, probably is better candidates. And I, I think the opportunity is there. You know, if you look at the political system, to me, it, it, there's nothing different about the left or the right. They're just, you know, how they're going to steal your money and how they're going to make you a slave is, is you know, in in, mar- in different degrees and margins and so forth, but by and large, it's the same message, right? So, so I, I I am surprised how many people I meet that actually resonate when I tell them what the Libertarian Party is about, and I think that not enough visibility in the general public is there. And I will tell you, my all my children are Libertarians, and not because I am, because that's how they think. And if we can capture the next generation, I have great hope for them then I think the Libertarian Party can become a, a major force. And one of the ways it can do that is early on becoming a spoiler in elections by really, in essence, forcing liberty to be part of the National Party discussion. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people, 
if nobody's talking about that, they're going to vote for the libertarians. You know, that that's what I've done in numerous elections, right? I, I uh, rather vote for the libertarian because of the voice of liberty rather than, you know, if there was a good candidate that I thought was going to win on the Republican and Democrat side, I might vote for them, but they're not. Right. They're not good candidates. Yeah. Uh, speaking of candidates, would you ever be one yourself? <laughs> I get asked that a lot. I so. know. I hate, I, I hate asking guys that question, but anybody who has any profile, we libertarians are always like, oh, let's get that guy to run. So, uh, well, not not in the near term. I've got too many other things to do and uh, still have money to make and so on. And I, I promised my family I wouldn't do it. They don't want me to do it. Well, that's a, that's a good enough reason as any. Uh, but we uh, we support uh, we thank you for your support of the Mises Caucus and just the encouragement we've had. And uh, we, we think the future is bright, too, because of people like you. Yeah, no, you guys are doing great work and uh, always been very impressed with what you've been doing. So when I had an opportunity to support you financially, I was more than happy to. Okay. Well, we'll let you go and uh, hopefully we'll uh, uh, see each other down the road in person sometime. Uh, yes. Stay healthy. You too, Aaron. Thank okay. You. Bye, Jim. Bye-bye. And there you have it. I'd like to thank Jim Cantrell for his time and wisdom and for all his generous support of and advice to the Mises Caucus. As always, thanks to Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution. Sign up for email updates at TakeHumanAction.com and get great discussion and up-to-the-minute news in our private Facebook group. Just search for Libertarian Party Mises Caucus. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.